Good morning, Trinity Church. How are we doing? My name is Hilke Hilkema. I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee our student ministries. Todd and his family is on vacation. Uh, they apparently needed a break from us. Um, understandably so. And, but they'll be back again next week. And hope your summer is off to a fabulous start. We just got back from our vacation and just a great time of year. Um, this morning, we're going to continue our series, Faith Steps. It's been a great journey. Learn so much from these Old Testament stories and just love seeing them come alive. This morning, I want to start with a couple of questions. How do you respond when your doctor calls you and says, would you come into my office? We need to talk about your, uh, your lab results. How are you supposed to respond when your children are not following the Lord and it's absolutely crushing you? How do you respond when your parent calls you and says, I have cancer? Maybe not quite as severe, but still very real. How do you respond when in just a few weeks you go back to school? Oh my gosh, sorry guys. But how do you respond when, you're, when your teacher, your professor hands you the syllabus, you open it up and you feel overwhelmed? There's a little bit of anxiety that sends in. You're like, how am I going to do this? I don't know what I'm going to do with all of that. Or your mechanic calls you. And as far as he can tell, you're car just basically exploded and it's going to talk and it's going to take like seven million dollars to fix what do you do this morning we're going to take a look at jehoshaphat and and he's going to get a phone call that's deeply troubling very concerning he's alarmed and he's not sure what he's going to do his circumstances is very different as are each of our own personal circumstances are they're very different from one another but his response serves as a model, as an example that we can glean from, principles that we can put into practice that will be extremely, extremely valuable as we continue to follow Jesus one faith step at a time. You see, our, our, um, our big idea this morning, and I put up on, on the screen, it says this, when I do not know what to do, let my eyes be on you. That's where we're going. It's a great prayer to, to live by. We're going to dive into the book of 2 Chronicles in just a moment. 2 Chronicles was written at the very end of the Old Testament era. You know, we find it pretty early on in our Bibles, but it was written at the very end of the Old Testament era. It was after a 70-year exile period, so we're talking way at the end. And it's a book that at Chronicles, see what they did there with the name? Um, they chronicle the reigns of the kings of Judah. They trace the kings of Judah, and, and they actually kind of paint those kings in a somewhat favorable light. Because what the author is trying to do is build anticipation for this future king, this future ruler that would come from Judah as promised, who would be the Messiah. It's actually a book of hope, of promise. Now, there's a lot of kings in Israel and Judah. 
So let's throw up a chart and see if we kind of sort those out a little bit. So it started with Saul, who really wasn't a great ruler, but he, he, he ruled a united kingdom, followed by David, a man after God's own heart, uh, a terrific king, not without fault, followed by Solomon, who had somewhat of a divided heart. And after his reign, the kingdom would be split into a divided kingdom. You've got Judah and Benjamin, a small tribe here in the south. And then you've got Israel and the, and the ten tribes in the north, and they are divided. Kings root, uh, real, rule each of these nations, each of these people groups. And you'll notice that Jehoshaphat is about four kings in, uh, in terms of the kings of Judah. Jehoshaphat was a pretty good, good, pretty good guy. Because you'll know, if, if you've been around, you know, the book of Kings and Chronicles, there were a lot of dirtbags. They were terrible, just awful. Jehoshaphat was pretty cool, actually. He was pretty good. Not without fault. You see, he made an alliance. He made an alliance with King Ahab, the king of Israel at the time, the northern kingdom. He had no business making an alliance with such a wicked man. Ahab was evil. He was a dirtbag. He was scum. Jehoshaphat should have stayed way clear of him. Bad news. The alliance decided to take on a neighboring territory in battle. And they just got shellacked. Just defeated. They got crushed. Jehoshaphat recognizes his folly recognizes his mistake, and he turns back to God in repentance and really leads his nation of Judah and Benjamin in, in, in reform, revival. And it's here we encounter when Jehoshaphat, he gets a very troubling phone call in Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 20. If you want to turn there, It starts off, verse 1, after this, after what? After the debacle with Ahab, the defeat and subsequent reform and revival and repentance. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Now, real quick, just to get our, our bearings, let's throw up a map of, uh, of the region. And you'll notice that you've got the, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites in, in the colored sections there. Um, and then the kingdom of Edom in yellow down below, that's kind of where the Munites used to live. So you've got three pretty decent-sized territories making up a pretty large army coming against Jerusalem, which kind of is in the center there. Um, and that's where Jehoshaphat finds himself. Verse 2. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is En Gedi. We're talking 25 miles away here. They are very close. They are knocking at the door. 
Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Jehoshaphat's first response was, I was going to say, oh crap, but that was not good. Uh, He was alarmed. He was alarmed. He was like, oh no. But then, I love his follow-up response. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. It says he got the people together to fast and seek after God, inquiring and seeking synonyms to make just this emphatic point that they resolved to seek after God in this moment. Yes, they were alarmed, but it was time to seek God. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard. You see, in, um, during Solomon's reign, when the temple was completed and it was dedicated, this happens in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, there was a promise given by God that, hey, if you find yourself in trouble, if you find yourself surrounded by nations, if you find yourself dealing with plagues, seek after me in this place and I will deliver you. So now, Jehoshaphat is going to pray a a very powerful prayer. And the first thing that Jehoshaphat prays is this. It is a reminder of the character of God. A reminder of the character of God. Take a look in your Bibles. Verse 6, he prays, Lord, the God of our ancestors... Are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in distress, and you will hear us and save us. The first thing that Jehoshaphat does, in front of all the people of God, he reminds himself and the people of the character of God, of who God is. A God who is all-powerful, the first part of his prayer is focused on the power and might of this amazing God. Then he moves on to give God thanks and recognize his faithfulness to his promises, promises to lead them to the promised land, the promised land that was promised years and years ago to Abraham. He reminds himself and his people of the character of God But you might think, I'm not sure that I like a God like that. All-powerful, all-knowing, sounds like a tyrant. That could turn into like some authoritarian ruler kind of shady stuff. Omniscient, and that's just creepy. I don't know if I can buy into this, this God you talk about. And those are, those are totally legitimate 
questions for you to ask. But let me put it to you this way. I could not imagine praying to a God other than that. And here's why. Christian thinker Ravi Zacharias um, explained it this way. God's sovereignty, the fact that he is all-powerful, God's sovereignty is not tyrannical because it is bounded by his goodness. God's holiness, his perfection, God's holiness is not torturous because it is tempered by his grace. God's omniscience, the fact that he knows all, all-knowing, is not taunting because it is coupled with his mercy. God's immutability, the fact that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that he is unchanging, he is immutable, is not terrifying because it is certain of his good will. Don't be intimidated by God with this kind of character. In fact, it is his character that should draw you to himself. Another way to say it perhaps is this, that when we pray, we should not only seek answers to our problems, but we should seek God himself. That when we pray and and, and this kind of life hits the fan, that we should not only pray for him to solve our problems, but that we would seek God himself, the all-powerful, all-wise, perfect, holy, loving God. After reminding himself and the people of God of God's character, the second thing that Jehoshaphat prays is a request for help. Seems like a good thing to pray. Verse 10. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of his possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? He prays, God, take them out. Take these out. Destroy them. Judge them. They have done us so wrong. Destroy them. Did you know that God loves to hear your, your requests for help. He's never too busy to hear from you. There's some incredible verses. James chapter 4. It says, you have not because you ask not. Isn't that awesome? He follows that up, by the way, that some of you have not because you ask with wrong motives. James tends to be very direct. I appreciate that. But it is true, you have not because you ask not. Incredibly powerful words. There's another verse that is just personally just so incredibly meaningful, meaningful to me when I encounter a crisis in my life, a hiccup, a bump in the road, a hurdle. It's Philippians 4, 6. And it tells me, do not be anxious about anything. Or don't worry about anything, but with prayer and supplication, which means prayer, with thanksgiving, which means prayer, make your request known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
powerful words that God is speaking to us, speaking to me, saying, make your requests known to me. Let's make a trade. Let's swap worry for peace. Are you down for that this morning? That sounds like a really good deal. Because I remember when my dad called me and he said, I have cancer. Panic sets in. It was fairly aggressive. At the same time, I had no idea that prostate cancer was like super curable. And he's fine, great. But I didn't know that in that moment. It was like nine years ago. I needed to be reminded of those words often. When my mechanic called me, and apparently my car exploded again, and it's going to cost another $7 million. And I start to worry. I needed to be reminded of that truth when, when I sit, sat in the classrooms. That's been a long time ago now, but my, my professor, my teacher, hands me the syllabus, and you're like, just overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. You need to hear that this morning. To make your request known to God. To trade worry for peace. It's a pretty good swap. So after making his request known, the third thing that Jehoshaphat prays is a response of submission. Love this. A response of submission. Verse 12 goes on to say, For we have no power to face this vast army. They're so outnumbered, you guys. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. That's our big idea. When I don't know what to do, let my eyes be on you. That's kind of the breakthrough moment, the light bulb moment in this chapter. Incredible truth. We have no power. I have no power. But I know that you do. What does it mean to keep my eyes on you? Let me tell you a story. There's a, an author by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's Russian. Last name is worse than mine. Um, he wrote a book in 1962, and it was called A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. I did pretty well on that, I might say. A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. You see, Alex, it's, it's a fictional story, but a little background on Alexander. He spent years from 1945 to 1953 in a Russian prison camp under Joseph Stalin. It was not a good time. There's things that he saw, that he witnessed, that he shouldn't have never seen. There are things that he experienced at the hands of evil, evil men that he should have never experienced. And in 1962, he, he decided to, to craft a fictional story as, as a, somewhat of a tell-all on these Russian prison camps. So then we encounter Ivan Denisovich. Ivan's been in prison for years, unfairly. He's been tortured. He's been abused. 
such a place of darkness. There is no hope. But there is. You see, Ivan was a Christ follower, a follower of Jesus. And even though his surroundings, his circumstances were so dark, so hopeless, he had Jesus. On one day, he he sat down in, in, in a corner, and he sat down to pray. Just quietly by himself, he bowed his head and started communicating with his heavenly father. Another prisoner, a fellow prisoner, takes notice of what's happening. And he walks over to Ivan and is prepared to ridicule at the sight of this guy praying. He says, Ivan, what are you doing? Are you praying? Prayer doesn't do anything here. Prayer doesn't get you out of this place any sooner. There is no hope to get out of this place. What are you doing? Then Ivan responds with these words. He says, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. I do not pray to get out of prison, but I pray to do the will of God. I want to pray when I encounter those hurdles that I want to do the will of God. I want to keep my eyes on Jesus. Faith step after faith step. William Barclay, old preacher guy, put it this way. When we pray, Remember the love of God that wants the best for us. Do you know that? The wisdom of God that knows what is best for us. And the power of God that can accomplish it. Isn't that sweet? To trust that God loves us so much that he wants the best for us. That God is so all wise that he knows what is actually best for us. And he has the power to accomplish it in your life. Lord, I do not know what to do. But my eyes are on you. I know you love me. I know you're wise. And you're all powerful. And that's enough in this moment. So what happens next? The enemy is knocking at the door. They're probably about 18 miles away now. If I keep talking, they'll be even closer. Jehoshaphat prays. And God responds. The spirit of the Lord came on a Levite, part of the religious class. And this Levite starts speaking God's word to his people. And this is what he says. Look with me at verse 15, if you would. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Check out these next words. They're incredible. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Amazing. Some instructions. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. He says it again. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. 
Amazing words. Wow. Could you imagine hearing those words when the enemy, 17 miles away now, amazing. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The battle belongs to the Lord, and I am going with you. So cool. The next day, they get up. And Jehoshaphat, let's, let, let's go. Let's start marching. Oh, while you're marching, sing as loud as you can. We, let's praise our God. I mean, we got some really good news. And please, have faith in your God, people. Have faith in his word. Have faith in the prophet, what he said, and start singing. So then they get to the gorge of Ziz, and they look over. Dead bodies everywhere. Wow. What happened? These three armies that marched against them. That God threw them in, in a state of confusion. And they start fighting each other. And everyone was done, killed. The battle truly belonged to the Lord. He fought their battle. So what does that mean for us? Does that mean that um, we will win all of our battles? It would make for nice preaching. I could potentially write a book, The Prayer of Jehoshaphat, Winning Life's Battles. That would be good. It's not true, though. There's plenty of stories of defeat as well. And God can still work in the midst of defeat, which is beautiful in his wisdom. This was an answer to a specific prayer at a specific point in time by a specific people. The, 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 the answer was unique. We are encountering this morning a narrative, a, a telling of history. This is a description of what happened. This is descriptive section of scripture, not prescriptive. There's no commands here. You should pray exactly like Jehoshaphat. Now, these are principles, valuable practices that we should adopt, which are affirmed, by the way, in the New Testament in a prescriptive way. The answer, you're like, oh, well, if the answer is just for the uh, Jehoshaphat and his crew, then, you know, all right, that's great, I guess, but where that, what does that leave me? Well, there's some super valuable principles that we can still glean from this answer. No, this is not a promise. Like All your battles will turn into just beautifulness and your life will just be roses. But when our eyes are on God, here's the first principle, our fear is replaced with a growing confidence in Him. When our eyes are on God, our fear is replaced with a growing confidence in God. Those, those people of Judah... They, they, they came marching with confidence. They were singing. They were worshiping. They were excited. Um, they had confidence, not in their own ability, because they were powerless. But they trusted in His might. So that when we focus our eyes on God, our fear is replaced with a growing confidence in God. Even in the New Testament, again, more of, a, more of a prescriptive section right here. It says in 2 Timothy that God has not giving, uh, given us a spirit of fear, but of power, confidence. Not our own power, 
in his. Awesome. When our eyes are on God, our confidence grows, yes, but also this, his word, number two, his word guides, encourages, and strengthens us for battle. When Jehoshaphat prayed and the people of God prayed, God spoke his word through that Levite in a powerful way. Did you know he's already spoken to you in an even more powerful way? If you're holding it in your lap, you're looking at it on your phone. God's word spoken to you so that when you face that moment of crisis, you can turn to him in prayer, but also turn to him and read how he guides you and encourages you and strengthens you through his word. Because it is profitable, according to 2 Timothy, for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness and correcting. Number three, that when we focus our eyes on God, because we don't know what to do, our eyes are on you. Number three, his presence is with us and we t- as we take our next faith steps. I love the last little tag in God's word to his people. What does he say? I will be with you. What an incredible pr- promise. I will be with you. You're not going at this alone. I will be with you. Did you know you've already been given the same promise? Multiple places in the Bible, but how about John 14? This is where the, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to not just live with us, but to live in us. His presence. His presence is with you. Whatever you're facing right now, God is with you. You have his word. When I do not know what to do, let my eyes be on you. It's an incredible prayer to pray. It is a challenge to live out. But at the end of the day, when you truly don't know what to do, what's left than just to say, Lord, I just want to do your will. I am powerless. That's all I got. Strengthen me for what's next. Give me courage. Give me comfort. Lord, do your thing. You have the power. You have the wisdom. I don't. So I'm going to look at you through your word, with your presence with me, confidence in you and your power. Now, if you are dealing with with a situation in your life, at work, in your family, we want to pray with you. At the end of each of our services, every week, we, we have people gathered here to pray with you, to pray for you. Today is especially one of those moments where it's not just, oh, that was a really nice sermon. I'm just going to go hop in my car. And No, if there's stuff going on in your life, let's respond this morning in prayer. So you can do that after the service. We'll be right up here. We'd love to do it. If you're not following Jesus, man, you can't do it on your own, can you? It's a tough place to be. It's a dark place to be. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is inviting you in. And he's saying to you this morning, the ABCs. A, admit Admit that you can't do it. You need my help. 
Admit that you are a sinner, broken, hopeless. Which is all of us in this room, by the way. We're not, ex- we're not just singling you out. But you admit you are a sinner in need of a Savior. B, believe that Jesus is that Savior, that rescuer, that he died on the cross for your sin, restoring you back to God, giving you hope and purpose and grace. And C, to choose to commit, to choose to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Yes, there will be some hurdles, some challenges, as we just talked about. But there's no need to fear them, because God is with you, and he is working in and through you with his power. That's an incredible promise, incredible truth that you can tap into this morning. I invite you to pray um, this morning, just the ABCs. Lord, I admit, I believe, I choose. And you can do that with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are so good to us. You are gracious to us. Lord, you do not leave us on our own. You've given us the promise of your presence. Oh, Lord, that is so incredibly meaningful when, when we're facing these hurdles, when we're facing these battles, these challenges in our lives. Lord, we remind ourselves this morning of your character, that you are good, you are perfect, you are holy and sovereign, all-knowing, and you love us. And Lord, you want to hear our burdens. You want to give us this exchange of, of worry in exchange for peace. Thank you. But Lord, we also want to just submit and say, We just want to do your will, one faith step at a time. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has not responded to your offer of salvation, that they would respond right now and say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin, that you are my Savior, and I choose to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.